Thank you for joining us, whether you're here in the house on this holiday weekend, or whether you are online or on a podcast later this week. I'm going to start off by saying, first and foremost, uh, we are starting growth group signups today. Growth groups are our small group. And as big as this place gets in here, um, Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to get 12 close friends together and share life with them. And so if you're not in a growth group, if you're, if you're not in one of those, I would encourage you to go sign up and just get in one and try it out. And uh, that, that's part of the church body experience that God designed, that we wouldn't just come here and be anonymous or kind of just shake hands and smile, but that we would be known and that we would know others in our life. Also, we have the conference we're signing up for. So right out there, you can sign up after the service. If you're on the podcast, don't walk out anywhere and sign up. Go to our website and you can do all those things. I have been gone for two weeks and I have some amazing stories to tell you. I mean, the stories that I've just, when it, as they're happening, I go, oh, I can't wait to preach this. And I, and I have no time today. I, I, zero time. Th- those will all have to wait. I am so excited about today's sermon. And because it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, I believe, show us something. Uh, it's going to revolutionize a story in Genesis that, that hopefully we will never see the same again. It's a story that maybe you've heard, maybe a flannel graph or a video or from your past. For some of us, it, it will be new. But, but God's going to reveal something to us today. And our prayer all week, my prayer has been that that he, in this moment, as you listen to it here or in your car later, wherever it would be, that God's spirit would speak clearly to you. This chapter of Genesis 22 has been one that's been debated and investigated from Hebrew sages to to Christian um, theologists for years, thousands of years. Because in the first sentence of this chapter, there are four words that provide both an amazing opportunity, but an incredible challenge. And that's what you're going to hear today in your life. You're going to be presented with an opportunity, but also a challenge. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. The thought that God would test us at all, for some of us, is a new thought. For for many of us, it's a frightening thought that God would test my faith. Have you ever considered that God has, has tested your faith in life before? Or perhaps you've been through a season of circumstances where you know your faith was being tested. Whatever the case, it, it, it isn't always comfortable to, to, to think that our God is testing our faith, is it? First of all, I want to clarify the difference between a trial, a temptation, and a test. A trial is when life brings us circumstances that challenge our faith and our obedience. And life just has a way of bringing us stuff, doesn't it? Your faith will be tested as circumstances happen. A temptation is something, ooh, I want that. And God says no. And your faith is tested. A test is something that God wants us to say yes to. Whoa. (laughs) That we don't really want to do. As he calls us out, calls us forward, asks us to step up or speak up or wherever it would be, he calls us to to move forward in faith and, oh, no, 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 I'm not sure I want to do that. That's That's a test. And the challenge of our faith is to step out and step up and obey God regardless of our excuses. And the longer we we put it off, the greater those excuses get. It says that God tested Abraham's faith. He's going to ask Abraham to do something he doesn't want to do. Abraham, God called. Yes, here I am. Verse 2. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him 
as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now, it's easy to talk about tests and being tested, our faith being tested and, and stepping out and, and, and saying something or doing something that God would ask us to do. But then you read something like this. What in the world is God up to here? What is God doing? This test seems too big. Let's be honest. This, this, this is troublesome. Notice the language. Take your only son whom you love so much. The Isaac, the son of blessing, the son of promise, the son who, who God said that his descendants would come through, who someday all people would be blessed through. The Messiah would come. Take that son, your only son, travel to a place that I'll show you, and there sacrifice him. I mean, Abraham has already been tested before. Abraham's been tested throughout Genesis, and he has failed. He failed in Egypt previously. He did not trust in God. And even when God promised him a son and to make him a mighty nation, he didn't trust God. And so he married Hagar, his, his wife's servant, and, and he tried to help God along with the plan. I don't, I don't trust God's plan, so I'm going to help him along. Abraham has failed in the past, but God continues to show him that God is trustworthy. And now he has this son who many believe is around the age of 13. They call him a lad. We don't know for sure, but he's a, we, can, we can assume around 13. He has this son of promise. God's shown himself to be faithful and trustworthy. So what does Abraham do with this, this huge test? What does he do? I mean, does he now trust God's promises? Is it worth putting all your faith into this, even though it sounds just ridiculous? Verse three, the very next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire, for a burnt offering, and set out for the place God had told him about. Abraham heard clearly from God to step out into outrageous faith. And he gets up first thing in the morning and he begins to obey. Abraham didn't wait a week. He didn't put it off a month just to mull it around. He didn't put it off a, you know, a couple months just to, I just need to get my head around this. There's no getting your head around this. There's no understanding this. Instead, he let his faith lead his actions. He let his faith lead his feelings instead of letting his feelings lead his faith. He got up early and began obeying. This reminds me of something that I tell my kids, much to their chagrin. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Have you heard that? Delay, if, you, if you're sitting next to your child, just nudge them. Delayed obedience is disobedience. When, when God asks you to do something, give up something, go to someone, say something to something, and we delay, you know, in my delay, my faith begins to get more and more marginalized as my excuses for not doing it get bigger and bigger. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And here's a simple one just based on, on earlier today with, with the baptism. We had baptisms earlier. Uh, when, we, when we come to Jesus in salvation, he says to be baptized. Now, oftentimes, we don't want to be baptized. Like, who wants to get up there and do Like, who wants to get up in front of people or, or have to talk? Or, or get, who wants to get dunked in front of a bunch of people? Like, you know, sign me up for that. But, but the act of baptism is something that Jesus has asked us to do. And oftentimes, we delay the obedience and in the process of delaying that a week, a month, a year, a decade, it, our faith gets smaller and smaller, our gumption gets smaller, and our excuses, our reasons for not doing it get bigger. 
This is a natural way of things happening. And for some, now it's a lifetime of excuses. Like, I, it's not going to happen. God's asking us to obey, and delayed obedience is disobedience. Abraham gets up early the next day and got to obeying. On the, here we go, verse 4. On the third day of their journey, and so, so they've been traveling for three days. Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. On the third day, that's interesting language. We haven't heard that before in, in Genesis. Maybe that we hear that somewhere else further in the Bible. Three days of travel, he looks up and he sees the place. God tells him this is the place. Remember, God said, I'm not gonna tell you before, but I'll tell you when you get there. He travels three days and he looks up and he sees this, these mountains, the mountain range of Moriah. These mountains are there. The next verse tells us a whole lot about Abraham's faith. Verse five. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham tells his servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. Like Isaac and I, we're going to go to church service. We're going to go to a church service, and then we'll both be back. Me and my boy will both be back. Abraham had incredible faith in God, and he put his faith into action. Abraham's faith right here is worth looking into. In fact, the writer of Hebrews agreed. Hebrews 11, verse 17. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God told him, God promised him, Isaac is the son whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life. Now, now in the New Testament, resurrection is a huge theme, thanks to Jesus. A huge theme, but not so much back here. And in Genesis, we have nothing on this so far. Abraham is living on faith that God can do something that so as far as we know, according to scripture, has never been done before. You see, but Abraham already knows that God can bring dead things back to life. His wife, Sarah, her womb was dead. She was barren. She was beyond, having, beyond the age of having children. And God resurrected. He brought her, life, her, her womb to life. And then Abraham got to hold the promise in his hands when he held Isaac, his son. He's seen God work miracles. He's seen God move where there's nothing else that could do anything other than God's power. He knows about God bringing dead things to life. And so God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, the one that God promised. Well, perhaps God can bring my son back again. He tells his servants to stay. And then what does he do? He placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and carried the knife. I mean, if you're Isaac, what are you thinking? You know, you've been to sacrifices before. You've, you've seen your father worship. You've worshiped with your father. You've heard your father speak about all that God has talked to him about. You've heard your father speak about who you are and what, what it can mean. And dad hears something from God and says, we're going on a journey. Where? That way. He'll tell us when we get there. And you see the knife and, the, and you see the fire. And you see the wood. But you've been to church with your dad before. There's one thing missing. As the two of them were walking on together, remember they're alone at this point, Isaac turned to his father Abraham and said, Father? Yes, my son. Well, we have the fire. We have the wood. 
where's the sheep for the burnt offering? Like, Dad, this isn't how this usually goes. Where, where's the lamb? Where's the sheep? Now, we read this account, and whether you know the story or this is new to you, uh, oftentimes, because of all the spoilers, like, you never watch Titanic and go, I hope it doesn't sink, you know? Like, we know, we know the end. We know what's going to happen. And so we can skip the drama. We just read past it. But, but, but then you would read past the incredible heartache. And I don't have time to go fully into it, but the heartache of those three days of journey. Can you imagine Abraham riding the, just, just the journey alone? He wakes up and he, he saddles a donkey. He's riding one. And, and every time as they're, as they're talking or, or on the way, he looks at his son Isaac and he smiles as his son says something funny or, just, or he just smiles in pride. Oh, it's my boy. And immediately filled with the adrenaline, the sickening adrenaline of what lies ahead. And the somber nature of this, this journey. Imagine Abraham's heart those three days, every night, making camp, sitting around a fire. Is this the last day? Is this the end? I believe God is going to do something. Imagine when he loaded his son's back with the very wood for the sacrifice. He's looking at his 13-year-old son's face right there, trusting, looking up at his father, trusting as he puts the wood on his back. The wood that will sacrifice his own son. And here Isaac breaks the tension with the question. Dad, where's the sheep? And Abraham, we don't know, but maybe this is, this is what he choked out. It says in verse eight, I don't know how, what, what kind of emotion he had when he said this, but he said, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And they both walked on together. I can't imagine being in Abraham's shoes during this journey. I can't imagine being in Isaac's shoes. We don't want to sterilize the story with our familiarity. Verse nine, when they arrive at the place where God had told him, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And what we miss here is that every single verse takes time. They have to get rocks. They're looking for, they're building the altar. God says, God directs him and says, this is the spot. So he goes to the spot that God had told him. They have to get rocks. They have to start building an altar and then they've been arranging the wood on it. And, and every step closer, Abraham's heart is probably pounding his emotion is rising and Isaac is just wondering what's going to happen but fully trusting his father. Abraham's moving in a, in forward in faith that the, the God is good and God's promises are true despite the fact that he can't see what God is up to right now. And then he gets to it. Then he tied his son Isaac. Now most all theologians agree that Isaac did this willingly. We don't know but I would gander if a 13-year-old raced a 100-year-old, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> the belief is that Isaac gave himself willingly. And it says, then Abraham laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And you can imagine as they are this far apart, this father and his son, and all the motions, the panic, the crying, Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. When I say don't sterilize the Bible and put yourself in the story, this is one I don't like to put myself into this moment. I just don't. 
And then the 12 words that we see here that tell us Abraham tied up Isaac and put him on the altar. We don't know exactly how that went, but you can imagine the emotion and tears. And he gets the knife. He raises it. And God, as God knew he would, intervenes. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, yes, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You've not withheld from me. The angel says, you have not withheld from me, even your son, your only son. God stops Abraham, though Abraham was fully willing to continue. Now it says here that the angel said now, that talking first person for God, now I know you fear me, respect me and fear me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, but, but in reality, we know that God knows all. God knows all. When God calls you to, to step out in faith to something that you can't see, that's all uncertain ahead, you can trust that God's calling you in, that he certainly knows where he's calling you to. He knows what he wants to build into you. He knows what he's, he's, he wants to break off of you. And he knows what he wants to do through you. And he knew that here. But he wanted Abraham to, have, to go through the faith experience of giving up all for God he loved above all things. And that moment, God spared Isaac and Abraham both. Did you catch that? God spared Isaac, but God also spared Abraham, this father's heart. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket, the quietest ram of all time, right? He took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Now, what kind of worship moment must that have been? As God provided the lamb just as Abraham had had faith. Abraham then named the place Yahweh Jireh. Yahweh, God's name, covenant name, and Jireh meaning, it literally means God will see to it. God will see to it. Or he's the God who provides. He's the God who sees to my needs. He's the God who sees his promises through to completion. Catch this next phrase and file it away for later. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. On that mountain of the Lord, it will be. Do you see its future tense? It will be provided. On this mountain, God will see to it. From this verse, the angel of the Lord then begins to speak more blessing over Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham and Isaac return to their home, worshiping God. Now, that's the teaching of Abraham and Isaac from Genesis 22, and we must admit there's, it's always been a, lot of, uh, a pretty big challenge as we see, why would God ask him to do this, and, and what's God going to ask me to do? And I believe it's important to ask these questions, and God, God's big enough to ask them all. Like, God, what are you doing here? God, why are you doing this? And what is this all about? I've told you before that as we're studying Genesis, we begin, I want you to begin to look for patterns. It, often in Genesis, God is revealing things through patterns. And I don't have time today to show you how Genesis 22 is a direct mirror of Genesis 21 and the sending way of Ishmael and Hagar. I don't have time today to tell you how Genesis 22 is also a reflection of Adam and Eve in the fall because I want to reveal something, a pattern that was set here that I believe is worthy of talking about that when you see this, you will never look at Abraham 
and Isaac and the sacrifice in the same way again. Because God is showing us something right here in Genesis 22 that won't fully make sense until thousands of years after Abraham. Are you ready for this? I'm I'm pretty excited. God comes to Abraham and tells him, verse two, let's review. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now, now take your only son, whom you love, and travel 50 miles, Abraham, to a mountain range there, and I'll show you which one, and, and there you sacrifice your son. Abraham doesn't know the location. God says, I'll let you know when you get there. Now, now here's the question. You gotta ask the question. Why the long journey? God, why travel 50 miles to do this? I can show you I trust you by doing it right here. Like, we got mountains, I got a hill, I got wood, I got the sun. Why are you making me travel to this specific spot, this specific place that you're gonna show me? What about that location is so important? God, what are you showing us here? What if I told you that Abraham and Isaac, what they went through on that very mountain, another father and son would experience the very same thing at the very same place. But the next time on one of those mountains there, Moriah, the son would not be spared. What if I told you that while God spared Abraham's son on this mountain, there would be a day when God would not stop the death blow on a favored son at that place. The mountain and hills of Moriah where Solomon would someday build the temple. This is the very place where, this this region, this area where the temple and the hill of Golgotha, known as the place of the school on Mount Calvary, were in the time of Jesus. Jesus had walked on Mount Moriah. Abraham didn't know that the temple would soon, someday be there. God, Abraham didn't know these things. He didn't know that God was leading to a specific place that someday would be the area where the sacrifices are done. Other rams and other lambs are sacrificed. He didn't know that his son wouldn't be the last. He didn't know his son would be the only Son has to be sacrificed there. That the very place where Isaac was bound to be sacrificed, thousands of years later, Jesus would be bound and sacrificed. Lean into me. Lean in, lean in. Hear this and hear this and pick up on the language. Pick up on the cues. Genesis 2.22, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love so much. And, 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 And then we have... John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. We have these miracle sons born under miracle conditions, sons of blessing who are beloved. Abraham takes his only son, he travels for three days. For three days, Isaac is under the sentence of death. For three days, Isaac is figuratively dead. And on the third day, he looks up to the place of God and on that day, his son was returned to him. And Jesus, after three days, was returned from the grave. Look at this verse. Abraham saddled his donkey and took it with two of his servants with him, along with Isaac. Luke 23, 32, Jesus was also accompanied by two criminals. So Abraham placed the wood 
for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulder, Isaac carries the wood of his own sacrifice up the hill that he was supposed to die on. John 19, 17. Carrying the cross by himself, Jesus went up to the place called the place of the skull. There in the mountains of Moriah. We have Isaac and we have Jesus walking up the same hill, carrying the wood for their sacrifice. But, 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 but something even, I want to go one layer deeper. There's something else happening here. There's something else afoot in Genesis that I want us to see. That when Jesus climbs the hill with the cross, it's not his first time walking up that hill for a sacrifice. Jesus has been there before. Do you remember when I told you previously that whenever you see this statement, the angel of the Lord, and if you're new with this, this whenever you see this statement, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and the Lord is in all capital letters, alarm bells should be going off in your head. That means something. The angel of the Lord with all capital L-O-R-D. That's called a theophany in the Old Testament. A theophany is where God is in the story. He comes into the story. And oftentimes it is often Jesus himself who shows up in the Old Testament accounts, which means that while Abraham is readying Isaac and readying himself to sacrifice uh, Isaac, while the father is, is binding his son and preparing him for sacrifice and the pain of all that moment, who else is present? Well, let's look at Genesis twenty two eleven. At that moment, the angel of the Lord... You see, Jesus says, Abraham, don't lay a hand on this boy. Abraham, that's not the son that needs to die here. Jesus was present and stayed the hand of Abraham. Abraham didn't go through the pain and the terror and the loss of seeing his son sacrificed in front of him. Abraham didn't. And so Abraham named that place Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide. And thousands of years later, on a hot and dusty Middle Eastern afternoon, the Lord saw to it indeed. As Jesus carried the wood of his sacrifice up that same hill, the place that God had established thousands of years before, the spot that God told him to stop and build the altar and place the wood and place his son on it, Jesus walked up with his wood. God had marked this hallowed ground ages ago as the place that he would see to it. Genesis twenty two fourteen, And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God the Father, like Abraham, watched his son, his only son whom he loved, walk up the hill with the wood on his back, knowing what was ahead of him. And there, like Abraham, God watched his son be bound and tied and placed upon the wood. Ages ago, on that very same place, Jesus had intervened and stopped Abraham and provided a sheep. But on this day, there would be no other sheep for the Lamb of God was to be sacrificed. 
There would be no staying of the hand. There would be no relief of the father. Where Abraham was spared, God did not spare himself nor his son. Romans 8.32, God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. As God watched what Abraham did not have to, he watched his son that was sacrificed on that ancient hill. And Jesus, on that spot, on that place, hung on that cross, and the blood from Jesus ran down that beam into that Middle Eastern soil, mixed with it, seeped down into the earth where the blood of Abraham's ram had bled in the place of Isaac. But on this day, the son was not spared. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, lifted himself up and said, It is finished! God saw to it. The Lord provided. He saw to it that his son was not spared so that you could be. He provided a way for you to be saved. Jesus died on that hill so that you could come to God no matter what you've done, no matter what objections you have and oh, you have no idea what I've done. Do you have any idea what God has done for you? He's the God who sees to it. And he's seen everything you've done and it's not enough to overcome the blood of his son and his son's sacrifice. He, Jesus gave up his life so that your sin could be forgiven. He was sacrificed so that you could have eternal life. He did that so you could come to know God and have transformation in your past and all you've done, in your present and all you, 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 you want, and in your future and all you hope and someday eternity. God provided salvation through Jesus because he's the God who sees to it. And on that mountain, it will be declared. He's the God who will provide. And he did. He provided his son so that you and I don't get judged by our sins, but by his works, his sacrifice. The story, it begs us to ask a few questions. And the first one is this. Ask yourself, what is my Isaac? Like, what's my Isaac? What's the thing I love in my life more than anything else? Perhaps even more than God. What is the thing I cling to with all that I can? You know, husbands, it, God tells us to love our wives like Jesus loved the church and he laid down his life. Marriage is consistently laying yourself on an altar for the one that you love. What do you need to lay down on the altar today? What do you need to lay upon the altar today? We say we love God, it's in our vision, it's on our t-shirts, but that love God comes from the verse that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, may you love God above all things. And is there anything above that that you would need to put on the altar? above all relationships, above all financial security or insecurity, above everything, your career, whatever it would be, what is your children? 
What is it we hold so dear that God would say, trust me with them? Yahweh Jireh, he's the God whom you lay your life and all that you are on the altar, trusting that he will provide, knowing that he is enough, knowing that he is the God who will see to it. You see, chances are there's some things you've been seeing too on their own, on your own, isn't there? Abraham tried it. God gave him some, some commandments and some direction. He goes, I'll see to that. And he created dysfunction and mess. And if you're like me, in your life, there's some dysfunction and there's some mess in some areas you've been trying to see to it on your own. And perhaps it's time to finally put that on the altar and say, God, I've been seeing to this my whole life and I've made a mess. I'm gonna trust this to Jaira, the God who sees to it, the God who will provide. What is he asking you today to put on the altar? For some of you here with me or listening or tracking along, perhaps you've heard the account of Jesus and his sacrifice and you know today that this is the day you want to pray to receive Jesus as your savior because he gave his life so that you could know him. And this is an opportunity for you to enter into that. When I say Jesus gave his life and rose again, when we pray in that, in faith, believing in our heart, speaking with our lips, the Bible declares that we have salvation. And so if you're in this place and you want to pray to receive Jesus, to, give, to, to lay your life on the altar and give it to him and receive his salvation, pray this with me. Say, Jesus, I need you. I know you died and rose again. I give you my life, my sin, my past and future. Holy Spirit of God, Fill me. My life is yours. What does it mean that he is Jaira in your life today? You know what it means? It means that God is seeing to it. He's going to provide for you what you need when you need it, where you need it. It means that in the trials you're suffering in right now, and I don't know what they are, but you sure do, don't you? You know your trial. It means that in that trial, in that hardship, he's the God who sees to it, and he's providing for you what you need. It means that in the temptation that you're facing right now, he is Jaira. He sees to it and he'll give you the strength. Come to him in that vice, in that addiction, wherever you are in, he is Jaira, the God who sees to it. And whatever test of faith, he's Jaira, the God who sees to it. You see, he is more than enough. He's more than enough for your trials, temptations, and tests. He's more and more forgiveness than any of your sin can create, more grace than your shame, more strength than your vices, more love than your loneliness. He is Jaira who provides these things. He will see to it in your life. Are you willing to come to him and put your life on the altar and trust him and stop seeing to it on your own? He is Jaira. And there are some things in your life he wants to see too. But today as we go into communion, there is an altar. There is an empty altar. And you need to look today during this moment and say, what is it I hold in my hand? What is it I'm clinging to so tightly that I've been seeing to on my own that I'm gonna lay down for him? Yahweh Jireh, we come to you You're the God who provides.
And God, the altar in our life today, we pray that your spirit would speak clearly. What is it that we need to put on the altar? What is it we have been seeing to on our own that you say, give that to me, my son. Give it to me, my daughter. I got more than enough. I have everything you need. I'm the God who provides. In your, in your kindness, speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name.